Automakers are plunging headfirst into developing technology that automates certain driving functions. Ultimately, they want fully autonomous cars. But are humans ready for this type of technology? That's coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM. for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Are human beings ready for all this automated technology that's coming into cars? Are they even ready for autonomous cars? That's what we're talking about today because our special guest is Brian Reamer. He is a research scientist at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And Brian, great to have you here on the show. Thanks, great to be here. Also joining us today are Jack Keebler with Keebler Auto, a consultancy that really dives into things on cars. And Mark Phelan, uh, the car critic of the Detroit Free Press, and great to have the both of you guys here. Thanks, John. Thank you. So, Brian, we, we see, you know, autonomous cruise control coming in. We see Cadillac Super Cruise. Tesla's got their autopilot. Nissan's got ProPilot. All this technology coming into cars. Are human beings ready for this? Well, it's a question of how you define automation. Um, it's a really an evolution of automation on our roads um, where we are increasing slowly the amount of support we're providing drivers. Um, the tipping point in automation in the car, maybe the automatic transmission or power steering. It goes way back. So a lot of the influx of automation to the car isn't really new. What's really new is we're doing it faster and we're doing more of it. And our goals aren't yet clear. Are we trying to improve the driving experience? Are we trying to improve safety? Are we trying to sell more car features? Hmm. It's an interesting question, and probably a little of all three. One of the big problems we see right now is driver distraction. And part of the reason, I think, is as we add more automation into cars, make them easier to drive, people are just not paying as much attention to keeping their eyes on the road. Well, why would you expect me to pay as much attention to the road? I'm adding automation to relieve workload. Now, once upon a time ago, many of us believed that, look, as you added automation, people were going to fall asleep at the wheel. But automation-induced underload is a combination of probably two factors. One, I'm no longer responsible for looking at the Ford roadway in the same way. So you know what? I have a little more comforting time to pick up the phone and do something else. How do you characterize workload? Right? Yeah, characterizing workload is a really interesting phenomenon because at the end of the day, we give up work to automation. And we take work back from the automation all right. the time. And it's a give and take. It really comes down to the foundations of needing to take a human-centered approach to design. We're not developing technology for technology's sake. We need to be focused on how do we integrate us as a human component successfully with the technology. You know what? Technology is really good at making some decisions and better than us. Other decisions, we're pretty good at split second of time. Somehow we get from point A to point B safely more times than, than statistically we probably should. 
How do we factor things like entertainment into that workload model? Yeah, you know what? In the middle of the night, when I'm falling asleep trying to drive up the highway, because quite frankly, it's boring, mm. entertainment helped keep me awake. Mm. And perhaps one of the most complex pieces is, let's take the cell phone. Talking on the phone in downtown Detroit, probably a bad thing. Needing to stay awake in the middle of the night? Call a friend. We don't fall asleep talking on the phone too easily. So that entertainment mm. is a balance of workload. It's all about how much demand am I under at a given point in time and that I have enough resources to react to events that I'm expected to. So if you're in a lab at MIT and you're trying to quantify workload, I mean, is there a graph, you know, like an like electronic graph with a little, you know, web on your head or something like There's that? There's no to... one measure, unfortunately. Okay. You know, in terms of safety, eyes on the road is probably the most important feature. Right. But yet cognitive workload, mind wandering, are all factors that contribute to somewhat to risk. Right. How much? A really interesting open question. Mm. The key being, we gotta be looking at the road to actually see threats out there and react to them. And the general public, I think, hears about automation and driving, and they go to the you know things that you know they read about you know completely self-driving cars and you know the the end of the driving experience for you know those who care about the driving experience. How f how far are we from that sort of stuff? What is it? What are the reasonable steps that we should be looking at as automation becomes you know more prevalent and more helpful in the next few years? Yeah, and I think the first and foremost, there are really no self-driving cars on the market or on roads today. There are folks testing the context of self-driving automation with, with either safety drivers involved or, or very, very small test settings where we may not have a safety driver in the vehicle. But it is going to be years, if not decades or longer, before you actually truly, if ever, can buy a self-driving vehicle. Well, then, Even how do you characterize those autopilot folks that were driving their Teslas and unfortunately had some pretty negative incidents? Were they also, you count those among the people that are sort of testing the whole idea of the self-driving car? Yeah, one interesting one. Tesla's autopilot system is not a self-driving system, as mm -hmm. some would like to talk about. It is a collaboratively driving, collaborative driving system where you as a driver have the ultimate responsibility right. for turning the system on and deciding when to use it. And I think it is an incredible misnomer and overstatement by some to begin talking about that in the context of self-driving. It's not. It is the driver's responsibility in a level two automated system for, for safety. So at what point do you hold you know, someone responsible for, say, overselling the system's capability? Yeah. And I think that in, in many instances in many automotive technologies, not just this instance in particular, there are promises made by either the media, marketing, et cetera, that right. overstate the bounds of technology. Right. You know, as I was sitting here thinking earlier, talking over lunch, the question is, is how do you put guardrails up to keep us on a reasonable road to travel without letting us step out of the road too much. And explain that a little more. You're not talking about physical guardrails. I'm not talking about physical guardrails. I'm talking about some policy leadership, some automotive industry leadership. You know what? This is a little beyond what's really socially acceptable. And I think the key here is that you know, if we want to move safety forward, and, and we have a major undertreated public health crisis on our roads, 1.25, 1.3 million people killed globally, expensive automobile accidents, we need to be making smart decisions over time, but we need to make sure we are making good decisions every step of the way. And as we've seen the context of what self-driving is on the roads kind of get out of hand, 
know, it's time for the traffic cop to stand it up. It does feel a little wild, wild west when you yeah. see some of these accidents occurring. Yeah, well, and it's not even the accidents, just the claims that are made. Yes, that yeah. too. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, some of what Tesla said, has said and has allowed its customers to believe is just downright irresponsible. Uh, but you, you said we're far, far from when it, people will be able to, to buy a self-driving car. Yeah. What about the day when we will see self-driving delivery vehicles around downtown Detroit, downtown Boston, that sort of thing? I that seems like a more, it's a more controlled yeah, or limited so, so I think, look, first of all, the context of L5 autonomy, a car that can go anywhere at any time, mm. for all intents and purposes, is theoretically infeasible. Why? We will never, as engineers, build a system that can do anything. We have engineering constraints. So whether it's delivery vehicles or robo-taxis, we are all going to be striving over a considerable period of time to expand the region in which these systems work, from perhaps a small streetscape in downtown Detroit to a bigger area of the city and so forth. You call those use cases or test cases? Well, the combination, you know, the technical term would be operational design domain, but okay. conceptually, yes, it's use cases, use areas that merge together. In the bigger question is not can we, if we will, it's the time frame. You know, the future is high levels of automation on our roads. The question is, is can we determine and find a way to make money with this fast enough in the near future, call it 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that the use cases can be robustly developed and deployed. So it's not a question of technologically can we. Over the long haul, I feel very strongly we will. The question is, can we make money doing this in a safety-efficient way? Well, now you're at the heart of the matter. This, this is really what the car manufacturers are trying to figure out, right? Yeah. And I think there are, you know, many senses, if we look to what started this oh, rat race, for lack of better words, <laughs> it was the DARPA Urban Challenge. Right. It's a technology evolution. Can we build a robot? But those are desert XYZ? drives. Where, sure. right? Yeah. And then Google said, hey, we're going to stimulate this. And the auto industry said, hey, we've got to keep up. There's a big difference between Google, GM, Ford, Chrysler, okay. and many others. And it's not technological capability. It's incredibly smart engineers across the auto industry. The difference is pocketbooks. You know, and and philosophies. And, yeah, I think it's pocketbooks more than anything here. Hmm. Because with it, money, you can do money anything. can do anything. In, in some sense, you know, Waymo slash Google has the ability to invest in the future, much like a nation would classically. So being really in nation state decision logic, where you're looking at, at looking at value streams that could develop over 20, 30, 40 years beyond what a company responsible hmm. to its you know, stockholders right. needs to do on a quarterly basis. And it's, you know, it's that vision that if they want to change how we look at mobility over the course of a half a century, you know what, if it's the right decision for the long haul, they can invest where traditional auto may not be able to. So is traditional auto handicapped relative to those players? In some sense, any, you know, industry that doesn't have incredible access to capital markets is. So not to say that it's handicapped in what auto does well. What auto does mm. extremely well is building vehicles that are highly reliable at low margin. It is an incredibly difficult feat. We watched with Tesla again, I mean, the difficulties of trying to build mass assembly. Auto's really good at that. And now, maintain margin. Maintain margin. Right. I mean, it's hard stuff to do. Yep. So one of the things that, that 
a lot of us are, are watching in terms of the traditional automakers is General Motors has said that they will have commercial self-driving taxi service, for want of a better term, available in some defined area Geofence this year. area, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but for people who don't know geofence, just some defined area uh, th this year. Um, how big a deal is that, and do you think it's going to happen? Uh, in some sense, not that big of a deal. Um, Aptiv just announced they had given 50,000 trips fueled by, Uber, uh, by Lyft in the Las Vegas area since CES 2018. Um, Waymo has been working in Arizona for years um, with a small test population. So, you know, the reality is, unless there are significant changes on the regulatory side, there will be a gas pedal, a steering wheel, and, and most likely a safety driver of some sort, whether that is on board or off board in these vehicles. The question is not if we can. The question is how much of an investment per mile do you have to make? You know, I love the context of, of the pizza delivery we talked about earlier. You know, if it costs you 20 bucks to deliver every pizza when they're delivered in bulk, are we really moving quickly towards where we need to go? And I think these are the big questions that the industry is going to have to wrestle with. How much of our future do we leverage on this is going to happen quickly? I think it's more of an evolution than a revolution. It's a long-term change in how we live and move. I think automation changes everything about how we live and move, but it doesn't do so tomorrow. It does so over several decades, if not a century or more. You're right. That, that's for the full effect of it and the effect it will have on society in general. But stuff is hitting, coming into the showrooms right now that's yep. already having an impact. How do, you, how do you think this is going to go? Uh, I'm not nailing you down to a specific timeline. I know better than that. But how do you think we're going to see technology coming into cars that allows for more and more automation, i.e., where the car does the driving, not the driver? And, and I, first of all, I don't think it's the car doing the driving so fast. I think it's the driver doing the driving with increasing levels of assistance. Mm. I think the future or the near-term future for the next 10, 20, 30 years is stronger and stronger level two systems where you have a little lateral support, a lot of longitudinal support, and a whole lot more comfortable drive. And I think the key being, and this is where I think, you know, Tesla has failed, I've talked about that publicly and in some of the Forbes posts that I've put up, um, is driver monitoring and driver attention management. I think that's what GM has done very well, and I think you see a big move throughout the industry moving that direction. Helping drivers manage attention strategically because it's all about the system, not about the technology. And, and if I can interrupt for a second, just for, for folks who are watching, uh, lateral support is staying in your lane, Same longitudinal way. support is accelerating and braking, yep. comfort is just the driver has to spend less of their attention worrying about these Worrying things. about this, less stressful commuting. Thanks for the translation, Mark. <laughs> Sorry. What about some sort of standardized testing for the systems? Can that be done? Yeah, long term? Absolutely. Are we there? Do we know what to test? No. But I mean, we do crash testing today, and it's become increasingly more sophisticated. You know, m many different kinds of tests are, 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 have been formulated over the years. I mean, couldn't, I mean, they say simulation is the thing that's going to drive these systems forward. Very fast, rapid simulation of all these different uh, use cases or test cases. Do you see something like that happening? Well, look, I don't think the auto industry crashes cars the way they used to either. Right. They simulate crashes. They do okay. both. <laughs> yeah, they simulate billions, yeah. and they crash dozens. Right. Why? Because electrons are quick. Right. So long-term, yeah, right. much cheaper. Long-term, you know, are we going to crash less? 
Sure. Can we figure out what needs to be tested? Yeah. But I think we've got to be careful here. Innovation at this point in the areas of autonomy needs guardrails, but doesn't need fixed mileposts. And I say that because if we build standards on how to test, we as engineers engineer to the standards. Get good at tests. And we get good at tests. And in some sense, crash safety is that way. Yes. So until there's a new test that we all of a sudden have to get good at, we don't move the needle forward quite effectively. So how do you incentivize the industry, much like aviation, continual process improvement in a safety culture of doing better tomorrow? How do we ensure that what we're doing moves us forward with guardrails. Well, you know, the, in, the independence at test, you have, you know, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, you have IIHS, which is, you know, backed by the insurance industry. They maintain tests and they, it creates a certain level of standardization mm -hmm. in regard to vehicle safety. I'm assuming the same sort of tests might be formulated to they're working. To get they're they're all working control. at that. I mean, the folks right. at Thatcham in the UK, um, right. IHS Consumer Reports, all are doing different things in that range. But they're modular as opposed to standardized, mm. so that you know, you're, you're able to change these tests flexibly as we understand these technologies more. And I think one of the hard parts in general about active safety technologies, which you know, is really the active state of automation in most cars, is that we have a tendency to test these systems without the human involved. So how well does the auto braking system work? Well, it works pretty well until you grab the steering wheel or you stamp on the brake, or you ignore the warnings. Yep. And I think testing the system with us involved is really the key to motivating the safety culture forward. It's not about the technology. It's how the technology works with us. And along those lines, one of the things that uh, we're seeing a, a lot of is the adoption of discrete driver assistance systems, you know, like lane departure, like, you know, uh, forward collision warning, uh, like blind spot. Are we at the point now where you can say every automaker says they're go working for a zero fatality future, which of course is impossible. Zero never, you never get to zero. But are we at the point now where you can say that there have been quantifiable improvements in safety due to things like blind spot alert, you know, lane departure assistance? It's really hard. Um, there's clearly technologies that are supporting safety efficacy, but the s numbers need to prove how good anything is just don't exist. And this is, in some sense, why we need to change our reporting requirements at the federal level, why some kind of, you know, I hate to call it black box, is needed in vehicles. So that not because we want to say who's right or wrong, we need stronger data to understand what solutions are working better than others? What, what about an anonymous over-the-air update from the vehicle? Let's say, you know, the problem has always been the accident avoided is not recorded. It, it's a non-event. It didn't yep. happen. But certainly with, with the new vehicles and, again, this greater communication between the vehicle and, you know, the mothership, you get a sense that if somebody attempts to make a lane change, they get a warning, the vehicle doesn't change lanes and avoids an accident, you can almost upload that as an, an event. Well, let's, let's go back to Tesla for a moment. Um, and, and while their autonomy event was a failure to move the stock, you know, hmm. Elon and, and some of the team there did talk about something interesting, is that you're using those anomalies to upload data about those events and learn from them, because right. you're dead on. We need to learn in real time, we just can't necessarily bring new models that are untested down to the car um, overnight. Mm. time and time again. 
So we need to learn from the data and we need better data coming up across the industry. And this isn't a, a Ford problem, a GM problem, a Chrysler, Toyota problem. This is an industry problem in understanding how do we share edge cases, how do we mm -hmm. understand where the best place to have competitive advantage in this new market is, and where the best place to work collaboratively as an industry is. And how Are do you, you doing that? that? I mean, I love hearing you talk about it. Is, any, is there any move to do this? I think there's talk and there's movement in some areas. Cybersecurity is a very successful area. And there's other areas that we just haven't figured out fast enough of how do we work together and where can we work together. And I think it's a hard thing because, you know what, each of us gets into a car and we expect that car to behave the same way. If you get, you know, we drove in a Volvo a couple minutes ago, or if you get into, in, into the VW that I, that I rented at the airport here, they all are a little different. And I am the interpreter that needs to get into this as a unifying force. And my expectations are that they work the same way. And we can take some lessons. Let's take conventional cruise control and radar-assisted cruise control as a great case study. You know, for those of us who drove with cruise control and adapted to the world with a radar, you know, managing the distance to the car in front of me, this was a great phenomenon. But as soon as you go back to that car without the radar, and when you forget about it, wait a second, why is this thing not stopping for me? Right. Because we as humans change, but these boxes that are working around us aren't changing in the same way. And this is what makes this problem so interesting. Yeah. It's a great time to be involved in auto. It's an exciting time in the future of auto. But man, some of the complexities the aviation industry hasn't solved over 50 years. You know, one of the myths of automation is with more automation means less human expertise. It's a myth. The more we automate, the more we need to educate when, how, and where to use this stuff. Even when it's simple automation, we still need to educate. And of course, the aviation industry does a pretty good job of training pilots. We do not do a good job of training people how to drive cars. No, and the hard part of that is the aviation industry admitted several years ago that pilot skill has eroded expensive automation. It's no mystery. If you don't fly, you don't learn. So as we drive less, it's inconceivable that we're going to have the same skills. And I think a lot of the auto industry right now is working under the context that the driver can be there long term or even midterm to back these systems up. And I think driver skill in general has eroded. Well, power steering, you know what, makes it easier. I was going to ask, I mean, is there a is sort of de facto is there a, a, a danger that with the system taking over so many of the responsibilities, whether it's maintaining lane or maintaining distance to the vehicle in front, that the driver becomes less skilled at that? And particularly when there be, there's a situation where, say, the vehicle in front brakes very hard and the driver really has to take the car out of lane and then apply brakes. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to do to get the car back under control and to stabilize it. It sounds like it can kind of leave you hanging there. Yeah. And, you know, this is someone I think one of the really tough decisions that, that's not a manufacturer decision, it's an industry decision. Mm. Can we automate fast enough that the automation gets good enough to handle that before your skills aren't there to support it? Or do we have to go back to what I think is really the bread and butter here? How do we support skill development along the way? Because I don't think automation is going to solve it fast enough. That's not mm. to say it's not going to solve it over the long haul, but just not going to solve it fast enough. Driver education, lifelong driver education, skill development is an area we've known for decades as a problem, and it is even more paramount today. Here's the good news. We can use technology in the car to help us make better decisions 
through monitoring, managing, managing, and motivating driver decisions. That's saying, when that car slams on the brakes, we may be more in tune to learn a little bit about the automated braking system at that point in time. You know, using you know some aids that our smartphones do really well. You know, bringing in that moment of information when we're primed to learn. Hmm. I think one of the best technology demonstrations there is a company we work with a lot, uh, Veneer. Um, they're learning intelligent vehicle concept that's been demonstrated at CES the last three years. You know, really bringing it back to driver centric. How do we support people to make better decisions along the way? Toyota talks in terms not in the, the SAE levels of automation, level one, level two, three, four, five. They talk in terms of guardian and chauffeur. And chauffeur is, yeah, the car just drives itself. But guardian, you know, like a guardian angel, it's going to make sure that. The car's not going to let you get in an accident. Can that mitigate some of these issues you're talking about of people forgetting how to drive? Absolutely. And I think it comes down to, John, very simply, driving versus riding. You know, and perhaps in the future we have to create a category in the middle of assisted driving. But right now, what is your mindset? I'm the responsible driver or I'm along for the ride? And that's where the confusion around self-driving today really is. We haven't created an understanding about what collaborative driving is all about. It's using a little of the automated assistance, but it still is driving. So Brian, it sounds like you're describing a situation where the system on board, as it takes up more of the workload, you may become bored, or, and you're like, you're fiddling with the radio, you're having an intense conversation with somebody on the phone or in the vehicle with you, and your ability to recover in, the, in, in when you have to kind of jump back in where the human driver has to kind of take responsibility back and take the wheel, there could be a significant gap there in terms of safety. Oh, wouldn't, wouldn't, and we need about a 30-second answer. Wouldn't expect, I, I wouldn't expect it could. It will. And that's why I think, you know, technologies like GM has in the SuperCruise system is designed about making sure that gap's big enough that the system handles the short-sighted stuff and you're responsible for the stuff that's a little longer because you need that recovery time. Right. Well, good. You did it in a lot less than 30 seconds. I commend you for that. But thanks for coming on the show, Brian. Very interesting stuff. Where, where can people find more of your research? So just Google me, Brian Reamer, MIT. Um, got lots of stuff on my webpage and lots of fun videos to watch. I, I love the stuff that we've been talking about today. Thank you for that. Jack Hebler, Mark Phelan, thank you guys, too. Very thanks, interesting sir. discussion. And, of course, I always want to thank all of you out there for having tuned in. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.